Well, I want you to turn to James, the first chapter. We're studying faith towards God, and what we're going to do right now is begin to speak about patience, something that all of you have. Hallelujah. An incredible, glorious amount of patience. I can see by the lovely looks upon your faces that you're some of the most patient people I've ever seen in my life. Hallelujah. But in James, I'm going to start reading from verse 1, again from the Amplified Bible. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes scattered abroad among the Gentiles in the dispersion, greetings, rejoice. I love it right there. The word greetings means rejoice. Listen to verse 2. Consider it holy joyful, my brethren, whenever you are enveloped in or encounter trials of any sort and fall into various temptations. Hallelujah. Let's quote that from the King James. It says, count it all joy when you fall into temptations. How many of you, well, in fact, I know all of you do that already, don't you? It's funny, the word count there in the Greek is literally what we, the only way we can define it today is that it's an accounting term. And what it speaks to is this. It says, count it all joy when you fall into diverse trials or testings of your faith. It means to, like, get a list, count every one of your trials and tribulations up, write a line under it, and let the sum of them equal joy. Oh. And I know that all of you are perfect at that, like I said. Now, God is not a sadist. Why would he instruct us in such a manner if there wasn't something that he understood that he wants us to understand. So at the risk of being glib again, it's extremely important, as I was just sharing before we started to hear this. He said, my brethren, count it all joy. Think about that. And again from the Amplified, it says, consider it wholly joyful. Now, you better know how to walk by faith to even go through that verse. Consider it wholly joyful, my brethren, whenever you are enveloped in or encounter trials of any sort or fall into various temptations. Now, one of the reasons, again, joy is so important is, um, is because joy is what keeps you focused. Joy is what removes the panic syndrome from things when, all, when you do find yourself faced with all manner of trials. Because let's face it, the fact of the matter is, when an unexpected thing strikes, when something happens, the first thing to go normally is your joy. Uh, and you do want to begin to panic, and your mind goes into high gear trying to figure out what to do. And what God continues to tell his people is don't lose your joy over the situation. And you know, Jesus being our supreme example of everything that we know and understand, in Hebrews 12, we'll get there later, don't turn there right now, but in Hebrews it says this, and this is the verse that really ministered to me years ago. It says, Jesus, listen to it, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despised the shame, and has now sat down at the right hand of God. And the Lord ministered to me a long time ago something. He said, son, he said, this is something you have to develop. But the, he gave me this statement that I've always remembered. He said, my son's focus was on the end result of what his obedience would ultimately produce. For the joy that was set before him, for the joy that was set before him. For the joy that was set before him. And it's like it says in Hebrews 11 about Moses. Moses endured as seeing him who is invisible. There's something about walking with God where your vision begins to see what others don't see. To the point that that which is invisible, to a degree, becomes visible to you. In other words, you become so, your faith can become so visual. You become so aware of what God's will is. And you're so persuaded, like Paul said, I'm persuaded that what God has promised, he is able also to perform. That you begin to keep your eyes focused on what the end result of your obedience is going to produce. And that should bring some joy. But the thing about it that hit me is it says, because of the joy that was set before him, he was able to endure the cross and despise the shame. Now, if you see in type what that speaks to for us, you see, the cross is always a place, it refers to a place of suffering, realistically. That's why today, glory to God, most of us, we, I'm trying to make sure I don't mess up here, most of us, you know, we have crosses. If we wear crosses, Jesus is not on them, is he? How many of you know the cross is empty? Because he's at the right hand of God. 
Because the cross is a place of suffering. He suffered, but he's no longer on the cross. The cross is empty. But nevertheless, the cross is a place of suffering. And you see, when you really receive the same understanding, like James is saying here, count it all joy. You have to not lose your joy. Add everything up. You may see it for the facts that it, that it contains, but don't let it steal your joy because your joy is the strength that you have to have for Christian service. Because I, trust me, Jesus said very clearly that in this world you will have tribulation. So a lot of people, you know, our, our people would walk up to us years ago and like my spiritual father would say, you know, people would walk up in prayer line sometimes and they'd say, pray for me that the devil never bothers me anymore. And he'd look back at him and say, what do you want me to do? Pray that you die? Because, you know, in this world, you will have tribulation. In fact, all those who live godly will suffer persecution. So you can't escape that stuff, but you can rise above that stuff. And anyhow, so joy is this force of the recreated human spirit that God wants us to always hold on to. And this is why it's one of the first things that hell comes to steal. And the issue is hell, you see, Satan is a fisherman. He's got bait, and most of us all our life have bitten on the same bait. In other words, the same kind of an issue normally is what defeats us. The same kind of a trial is what discourages us. Uh, and the issue is don't, see, this is what I keep saying about don't, we have to get free from the panic. You see, it's not that discouragement doesn't come or dismay or disappointment doesn't come, but we're, we should not allow it to stay. It's interesting, you know, when I, I did a study on, one day I was looking up something years ago, I think it was just the word disappointment. You know, one of the best study tools you can ever have is the oldest dictionary you can find. You know those old dictionaries that are about that thick? They're some of the best study tools you'll ever have because, you know, today language has changed so much, but when you have one of those old dictionaries, you really can see a lot, especially when you study from the King James, because, of course, you know, 90% of all study material is collated to the King James Bible. That's why you need to still have a King James Bible, whether you like it or not. Never, never mind. But anyhow, <clears throat> I started to <clears throat> say something about other versions, but I always get in trouble, so I won't. But, I'm trying, I know, I know, I know. But anyhow, moving right along really quickly. <laughs> um, now I forgot where I was going. <laughs> anyhow, let me just jump back to this. The whole idea of this joy, and this whole principle of this thing is that, again, it's the first thing that hell tries to steal from us. Uh, it's the strength for a Christian service. But the cross is a place of suffering, and it's having and it's retaining and it's protecting and it's guarding this joy that allows you to have the strength to endure the places of suffering that will come to your life. And also, it will allow you to be able to despise the shame when people begin to mock you for your decision to live for Christ and walk in obedience. Every single time, you see, you set out to obey God, whatever God has ever said to you, every single time you set out to obey God, there is a cross that comes with it. And there is an opportunity for shame that comes with it because the world will come against you. And unfortunately, uh, like Paul said, unfortunately, a lot of our enemies come from within, don't they? From within the church itself, the very people who should be in support and people that want to pat you on the back and say, go for it, brother. You can do it, are the ones that say, well, you better be careful, and they always downplay everything. But nevertheless, so James, all through Scripture, and like I said there, what Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but he said, what did he say after that? <clears throat> he said, be of good cheer. Be of good cheer, because I have overcome the world of the power to harm you. Now, either he meant that, or the whole Bible is a lie, so some, for all through Scripture, you'll find that it's, it's all through Scripture that God wants us to retain our joy. And this is, you know, there's a verse, um, I'm getting off the topic already, but I can't help it. I want to read something out of Isaiah 50 in the Amplified Bible. This is an incredible verse. Steve, that's in the Old Testament. Sorry, I have to help some people every once in a while. But in Isaiah chapter 50, I'll just start right here in, um, well, I'll start, I'll start in verse 4. The servant of God says, this is one of my prayers every day as well, the Lord God has given me the tongue of a disciple 
and of one who has taught, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He wakens me morning by morning. He wakens my ear to hear as a disciple, as one who has taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I have not been rebellious or turned backward. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to those who plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. For the Lord God helps me, therefore have I not been ashamed or confounded, Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Hallelujah. He is near who declares me in the right. Who will contend with me? Let us stand forth together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. For behold, the Lord God will help me. Hallelujah. Who is he who will condemn me? Behold, they all will wax old and be worn out as a garment. The moth will eat them up. Now that's a whole wonderful Truth, but watch what this next verse in the Amplified says. Who is among you who reverently fears the Lord, who obeys, now listen to this, who obeys the voice of his servant, yet who walks in darkness and deep trouble and has no shining splendor in his heart? That's the part that always touched me and has no shining splendor in his heart. Let him rely and trust and be confident in the name of the Lord. Let him lean on and be supported by his God. Now think about this, because you know, when you do go to minister to people, let's face it, you know, they talk about the eyes being the window of the soul or whatever you want to call it. But isn't it the truth? You can see in an instant, if you're honest, you can see where people are at simply by the face that they carry with them. Now, I'm not saying that sometimes you're not in deep thought, but I mean, if it's constant, we know where there's no, if there's no, if there's no shining splendor in a believer's heart, they need some help. I, I'm, I, you know, I'm trying to be as nice as I can. I'm not condemning anybody, but I'm saying, you know, when God comes into your life, something changes. <laughs> I mean, God's victorious. And either what's happened is when believers get saved or say the prayer and they, they get saved, what have you, either they've never been taught the truth of what God has done in Christ or something's drastically wrong because to have the Son of glory be in your spirit means that there should be some shining splendor in your heart. That's all I'm trying to say. So look at your neighbor and say, this is my shining splendor. <laughs> you know what I mean? Praise. Hallelujah. Now look back at your other neighbor and say, this is why we have a problem. <laughs> Anyhow, hallelujah. So back to James, anyhow. But Jesus said, be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. So this is the word of the Lord for you today. Be of good cheer. But you don't know about my tribulation. You don't know about my tribulation. Some people are so busy tribulating that they don't understand. I mean, it's not me trying to be silly, but I'm telling you the honest truth. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Amen. Amen. If you have no strength, it's because for some reason you have no joy. Somebody needs to check that. But let me keep reading here. Consider it wholly joyful, my brethren, whenever you are enveloped in or encounter trials of any sort or fall into various temptations. Now listen to them as it starts in verse 3 here. It says, be assured. Now if God's word says to be assured, you can be assured. Be assured and understand that the trial and the proving of your faith does something. It says it brings out endurance and steadfastness and patience. But then it says, but let patience have its full play and do a thorough work. Listen to me. Let patience have its full play and do a thorough work so that you may be a people perfectly and fully developed with no defects lacking in nothing. Are you listening? Now you're looking over there because you're trying to check that out. You need to be looking here, all right? <laughs> don't be distracted, like I said. I don't care if a train goes to the room. Don't be distracted. Like I said the other day, it only takes one word from heaven to change your whole life. Don't train, train yourself not to be distracted by stuff, okay? Just who cares? But now listen to it because this is incredibly important. He said, counter law joy when you fall into diverse temptations and trials of your faith, knowing something. And he, you have to know this, knowing something that he said, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. The trying of your faith works something. It's supposed to work something called patience. But it says you need to let patience 
have its full work because it will make you perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Hallelujah. Uh, did you hear that? Wanting nothing. So patience is incredibly important. I said, I think, yesterday, this basic little simple statement about how faith is indeed what opens the door to the reception of God's promises. But patience is the doorstop, as it were, that keeps that thing open. Now, just let me keep reading here. If any of you is deficient in wisdom, let him ask of the giving God who gives to everyone liberally and ungrudgingly without reproaching or fault finding, and it will be given him. Only it must be in faith that he asks with nothing wavering, no hesitating, no doubting, for the one who wavers and hesitates and doubts is like the billowing surge out at sea that is blown hither and thither and tossed by the wind. It says, For truly let not such a person imagine that he will receive anything he asks for from the Lord. I mean, how important is this? I mean, seriously, think about that. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. Nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wind of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. Like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. It says in verse 7, For truly let not such a person... In other words, who wavers here, they say this one moment, they say something the next moment. It says, For let not such a person imagine that he will receive anything he asks for from the Lord. For being as he is a man of two minds, hesitating, dubious, irresolute, he is unstable and unreliable and uncertain about everything he thinks, feels, and decides. Well, this is the major reason right here. In this first chapter, you'll find some of the major reasons why people don't receive from God because they make a release of their faith. You see, everywhere you study in Scripture, faith was released by a word of God or by what you believe. Like when we teach on healing, it's an incredible thing to really go through it step by step. In the four Gospels, there's something like, depending on your study, some of you heard me say this before, but in the four Gospels, there's something like 14 to 17 specific acts of healings. Now, in the midst of that, you know, I love, one of my favorite verses is still the very last verse of, of, of the book of John. You'll all be familiar with it where it says, you know, the apostle said, had we written all of the things that we'd witnessed in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, I do not suppose that the world itself would have been able to contain the volumes therein. I mean, isn't that incredible? Can somebody say yes? <laughs> Think about that. If we had written everything that we had witnessed in the life of Jesus Christ, I do not suppose that the world itself would be able to contain the volumes therein. Hallelujah. So you see, the four Gospels, as it were, have a sampling. They have examples. They have uh, shadows of what God did. But in Christ, Jesus himself, when he performed these 14 specific acts of healing, and why most people agree that it's 14 is because he was a type of Elisha. Elijah had seven miracles. Elisha had a double portion. And when you study Elisha, there were 14 miracles listed. So anyhow, in the midst of those 14 major miracles, over... 70% of them, Jesus said this kind of a statement, didn't he? He said, as thou hast believed, so be it done unto you. Or your faith has healed you. And you see, what your faith is, very simply, is what you believe. What you believe. Now, I feel like I have to throw this in in this session because it's so important, like I said, because we won't have time to get to a lot of things, at least not this trip, maybe next year. <laughs> but the point is this. So many people, they wonder, you know, they've had a particular experience with God, where God met them. And then what happens is people historically have taken the way God met them and created a, created a denomination from it, because that's how God met them. But the point is, Jesus Christ, when you really follow his life, before he could do what he was able to do, he had to find out what they believed. Because what you'll really discover is that Jesus Christ meets you where you believe. It's an incredible thing to watch. Uh, Jairus, remember, Mark 5, said, Lord, come lay your hands on my daughter that she may be healed and live, or that she may be healed and she shall live. And Jesus said, okay. And if you remember Mark 5, Jesus is on the road with Jairus going to his house. He's responding to what Jairus believes. Jairus' faith was released in words, Come, lay your hands on my daughter, that she, she, that she may be healed, and she shall live. Okay, Jesus responds. In the middle of that, the middle of the direction, the middle of the road, remember, a woman with the issue of blood comes up. 
And it says about her that she had heard of the fame of Jesus and that she had begun to say in her heart, if I can just but touch the hem of his garment, I shall be made whole. And that she begins to press through this crowd. She presses through the crowd until she gets up and she touches the hem of his garment. And instantly it stops Jesus short in the midst. And remember, I love that teaching because Jesus stops and the first thing he says is, who touched me? And remember what the disciples say? What do you mean, who touched you? Because everybody's touching you. Because there was this great press of a crowd round about Jesus. Jesus, Jairus, is on the way, on the way to Jairus' house. And everybody's touching him. And this is one of the most dramatic teachings of faith there is. Because everybody's touching him. But this woman touches him. And the Bible says Jesus stopped immediately because he perceived that virtue had gone from him. In other words, anointing had pulled from him. Now think about this. The master didn't even know the woman was around. But the moment she touched him, and of course, what was the difference between her touch and the touch of everybody else? It's because this touch was attached to her faith. And do you really hear that? And I mean, Jesus, poof, he felt that anointing come from him. And he turned around in the crowd and said, who touched me? And the disciples said, everybody's touching you. And he said, no, there's something different. And he continued to look around. And then the woman, knowing that she'd been healed in her body, the Bible says, fell at his feet and began to tell him the whole story of how she'd spent many on all her money on many physicians and had grown, grown nothing better but rather grew worse, remember? Now, in the midst of all that, she's telling the whole story, remember? And Jesus said, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. Now, think about that, though. Jesus didn't even know she was around before. Do you understand that? I mean, Jesus was walking that way, Somebody touched him from back here, but somebody who'd been releasing their faith. She had been saying with their mouth, if I can but touch the hem of his garment, I shall be made whole. She then acted on her faith by going and pressing through the crowd. And that means today for us, all those things that might be constricting, all those things that are obstacles, you have to learn to press through them. I said you have to learn to press through them. You have to press through the crowd. She presses through the crowd. She touches the hem of his garment, and immediately she felt in her body that she was made hold of this plague, right? And Jesus turns around and said, who touched me? And that whole thing happens. And he ministers to her and says, your faith has made you whole. But in the midst of that, remember what else happens? To me, this is, I've always tried to walk in the scriptures and think about them. How many of you know he was on the way to Jairus' house? Now, let me tell you, like my daughter you know, is here this week and want to have you. If my daughter was at the point of death, if your daughter was at the point of death, would you be serious? Would it be a serious matter to you? And here you come, and you, man, you come to the master, and you say, Lord, come lay your hands on my daughter that she may be healed, and she shall live. And so the master says, yes, and you're on the way. Hallelujah. Well, you know, you've got, you feel good in your heart because you're on the way. But all of a sudden, you're on your way, and the, the master stops, and there's this interruption. And this woman is there, and she falls at his feet. Now, ladies, every time I share this, people, you have an opportunity to get angry at me. But, you know, men are headliners. Women are fine print people. They're detail-oriented. The Bible says the woman fell at his feet and told him the whole story. <laughs> the whole story. I mean, the whole story. I love you, women. I'm actually married to one of them. But, I mean, hallelujah, the whole story. See, we men are headliners. We are. That's the way God made us, you know. Yep. Nope. Okay. But women like to share for and share. May the Lord bless you all. <laughs> Don't anybody get angry at me. But she, and I always picture, but can you actually physically put yourself in the midst of Mark 5 and B.J. Iris for a moment? Here's the master. If you can see like the woman has fallen at Jesus' feet and worshipped him. And here's Jesus. Jesus is standing here listening to this story, the whole story. Jairus is standing here, and you know, Jairus is a man, leader, ruler of the synagogue, put his whole, whole reputation on, his whole job on the line. And he's standing here, and don't you know that in his spirit, he had the opportunity to kind of say, well, uh, you know, this is great, but like, I was first. You know what I mean? <laughs> but do you remember what happens next? One of the servants from the ruler's house comes. Here's Jesus ministering to the woman. Here's Jairus. Somebody else comes and puts his hand and touches his shoulder, and what does he say? He said, Master, uh, he said, sir, trouble the master no longer. Your daughter is dead. Now, how many of you know that's a bad report? It's an incredibly bad report. But the next verse, see, this is a vital pattern throughout all Scripture about how faith works. Jesus, it says, overhearing, 
but ignoring, turns immediately to Jairus because he heard what the man said. And this is what Jesus said. Jesus said, do not be afraid, only believe. But you know what one translation says? Shut your mouth. Don't say a word. Just keep on believing. And in the Greek, it says something similar to that because the issue is, again, guys, faith is released with the words of your mouth. Again, Romans 10, for with the heart man believeth, and with the mouth confession is made unto whatever it is that you have need of that are the, that's promised in the Word of God. And so Jesus turns and he says to Jairus, with all the love but the strength too, and in the Amplified it says this, do not be seized and gripped with fear. Because that's what happens when the bad report comes. Fear will come to seize you, I mean grip you, and fear will grip you, man. I mean take a hold of you, and it'll just erase all of your faith if you let it. And you see, the way you release faith is through the words of your mouth. In the name of Jesus, I believe. I receive that, like Jesus taught us to pray in Mark 11. But you see, if you turn around the next moment and speak the opposite, then you actually take that second confession and destroy the faith of the first confession of faith. Now, don't get upset because of the word confession. Everybody thinks, you know, that's just some old something everybody butchered. Yeah, people did butcher it in the old days, you know, but it's still Bible. The word homologeo means to speak the same thing as. When people speak about confession, most people think about the confession of sin. But the word homologeo is used far more in the New Testament than any other word. And it means the confession of our faith, the profession of our faith, that we're literally to speak the same thing as God speaks. That's what it says. That's what it says all through Scripture. And I know in the first days of the faith movement, people would get, you know, God bless their hearts. You know, as my wife says, bless their cotton socks or whatever. You know, people would be so aware, they'd be teaching on the power of your words and the power of the confession of your mouth. And it's very important because, for example, Proverbs 18 says, a man's moral self will be filled from the fruit of his mouth and with the consequence of his words, he must be satisfied, whether for good or for evil. What did Jesus say in Matthew 12, some of the most frightening scriptures in the way, in a, in a degree, Jesus said, you're going to be judged by every idle and operative word that you speak. <laughs> you know, that's one of those verses you like to take scissors and just cut out and throw it away. But you're going to be weighed. You see, it doesn't mean judge, judge, condemn. But you see, the way you are justified, a man is justified by his words, a man is condemned by his words. That's what Jesus said. So don't get angry at me. So words are all powerful. Words are important because words are what release faith. Words are what deny faith. But here's Jairus. He hears this bad report. Your daughter's dead. Well, that's too late, isn't it? Well, evidently with the Lord, it wasn't. Because before Jairus could open his mouth and go, oh, my God, she's dead. Jairus, or rather Jesus, overhearing but ignoring, turns and says, don't say a word. Just keep on believing. He shut his mouth. I've had to have the Lord shut my mouth many times. And then he went on and he gets to Jairus' house. And, of course, he walks in and everybody's making the tumult, like I said, weeping and howling. And you remember in those days they would hire mourners. But Jesus walks in, and see, Jesus always protects faith. Jesus said, the damsel isn't dead, but she sleeps. And the disciples themselves said, well, Lord, if the damsel sleeps, she, she does well. I think I might be mixing that up with Lazarus. But nevertheless, he walks in, and he says she'll be okay, and all of the people who were mourning instantly begin to laugh and to joke. And remember what the next thing is he does? He sends, he drives all of those people out of the house, and he only goes in to the daughter with the parents and with his two closest disciples. And therein again lies a huge, huge story that all of us have to understand. For you to receive miracles, listen to me, for you to receive miracles, you have to drive the unbelief out of your environment. You have to do all you can to get unbelief out of the immediate environment of whatever's going on. Like with Julian, like I said, one of our major long-term visions has always been a prayer and a healing center because we've watched what God can do. We've had so many people that were considered to be terminal, you know, that had no chance of living. We watched God raise them up. Hallelujah. God raised them up. But we've watched some die too. But the ones who were delivered and were free were the ones that we were able to extricate from their environment of unbelief. Because it's really hard to fight the good fight of faith when you've got 45 other people around you telling you, well, it's okay, you'll probably die soon, and it's the glory of God, and you've got the sickness for this and what have you. Jesus always expelled unbelief out of the arena. And that's something we've got to learn. Hallelujah.
But so that's why we come back to this, count it all joy, but you have to let patience have its perfect work, making you perfect and entire. Jairus had to be patient as he walked on the way, and he had probably a multitude of opportunities to faint in his own mind, didn't he? Because he'd already been told by one of the servants of his household, she's dead. But she's dead didn't move Jesus. Hallelujah. And I want to quote again Psalm 112. That is a powerful truth. I will not be afraid of an evil report. My heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. You have to take your faith and you have to stake it to the ground and say, this is my faith in the name of Jesus Christ. I will not be double-minded. I will not have one release of faith one moment and then change my statement of faith the next moment. For a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let not that man think he will receive anything from the Lord. So again, like I said, you know, I know that a lot of people butchered the whole faith message in the beginning, and, and we teach about the words of your mouth, like I started to say, and I remember when people would walk into a room sometime, they'd, they'd, as a joke, say, you turkey, you, and people would seriously go, watch it, don't say that. I mean, the guy might begin to sprout wings. <laughs> seriously. I mean, they were serious about it. Don't call him a turkey. Like the guy's going to become a turkey. I mean, so people took it to such a wacky degree that it's no wonder that so many people got spoken of so ill. But that does not take away the truth of the matter. That when prophets spoke, they released the will of God on the earth and it changed nations, it changed cities. That's how faith is released. That's how God's will is released, through words. Isn't it? Well, it is. Think about Genesis, the first chapter, 11 times. 11 times. It says... That let, you know, God said, God said, God said. The worlds were created through God's speaking. The worlds were framed and fashioned and equipped and put in order by the word of God. Hallelujah. And the same thing happens today. You begin to frame and fashion and equip and put your own world in order when you begin to speak in line with God's word. Oh, I'll tell you. Hallelujah. One day we'll wake up to this and we'll quit thinking it's just some American trip. It is not some American trip. It is the Bible. You have to set a guard upon your mouth. Keep the door of your lips. You have to watch your mouth carefully, carefully, carefully. Because what you speak, you give life to. I'm telling you, what you speak, you give life to. And you have to watch it, that you don't keep speaking death all around you. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And they indulge it, will eat the fruit of it. Hallelujah. That's what it says. So what do we do? Deny all these scriptures? You can't deny it because it's the truth. Let me get to the outline here. We must understand that there's a pattern here. The word comes. Remember when we were in Mark 4 yesterday, the word comes. Satan cometh immediately to steal the word. Do you remember that? And we talked about this. So here's the pattern. When the message comes, you see, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So a message comes. Faith comes. But then the Bible tells us in, in Mark 4 that Satan will come immediately and by force, try to take the message from you, won't he? See, but this is where patience comes in. Like I said, when the word is preached, every single time the word of God is preached, faith is available. But part of what you have to understand is that Satan cometh immediately, Mark 4, 14. Then we're faced with the opportunity to faint, to give up, or to stay in faith. Hallelujah. Now, there's a verse, another verse in the Bible I'd like to destroy. It's Proverbs 24, 10 in the Amplified Bible. It says, if you faint... In the day of adversity, your strength is small. <laughs> I always said, Lord, thanks a lot. You know what I mean? Because there's been some days of adversity, and I fainted. But God's word with love says, your strength is small, son. You need to be strengthened with might by my spirit in your inner man. So here's the pattern. When the message comes, the opportunity for faith comes. Every single time the word of God comes, say about healing or anything else, faith comes. Let me tell you how this has worked in my life as far as healing real quickly. You know, because I had to understand this simple, 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 simple truth that faith comes, Satan comes. That's what it says. Does it say that in Mark 4, 14? It says that. When the word comes, Satan cometh immediately to steal the word. You know, when I first got a hold of the truths of healing, how many of you know when you get a common cold, a cold will last about, you know, eight, nine, ten days, depending on whatever. I mean, you know, if it'll just run its course, won't it? It's incredible, you know, and any time in my life I ever had a cold, a cold will last eight, ten days, that's about it, and it's done, and it's miserable, but it's done. When I first was challenged by my teachers and stuff to get a hold of the Word of God and to begin to exercise my faith for healing, because, you know, I was taught and I understood that Jesus Christ himself, he took my infirmities, 
He bare my sicknesses. By his stripes I was healed. He sent his word and healed me and delivered me from all of my destructions. Exodus 25, Exodus 27. If you will serve the Lord, if you will serve me, I will bless your food. I'll bless your water. I'll remove sickness away from the midst of you. And I mean, I studied healing and I looked in the Bible for every scripture there was for healing. And I began to learn that the way you release your faith is to, is to, is to, you know, is to do just that with the words of your mouth. And so when a cold would start to come, I'd say, Father, in the name of Jesus, I resist this thing. In Jesus' name, because the Bible says we, we raise the shield of faith, wherewith we are able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Familiar, familiar stuff, I know. But the shield of faith, what is faith? Faith is what you believe. Faith is the substance of the things you hope for. It's the evidence of things not seen yet. But I'd raise that shield up and I'd say, in the name of Jesus, I refuse this stuff the right to function in my body. You see, because when it comes to healing, I don't mean to keep going on there, but you have to understand, most people... They need a real adjustment in their thinking because most people think that they're the sick that are trying to get healed. When the Bible teaches in Christ, you are the healed from whom Satan steals health. It's a massive difference. You see, what happens is because in your mind, you see yourself sick. God sees you healed. You have been healed by the stripes of Jesus. But Satan comes to steal what is yours. And so you resist that stuff. The way I've been able to keep free from the stuff that's coming to me is I've learned I don't receive it like I was talking the other day because you have to receive the stuff in your spirit, identify with it, and possess it by saying, uh, yep. How many of you know you hear people say, well, I'm catching a cold. Why don't you turn around and say, I'm catching a healing? Amen. Why can't you use the very same, and I, I know it sounds funny, but I'm not being funny now. Why can't you have the same thing instead of possessing it? I've got this. I've got healing. And I've learned to say I've got health long before I felt healthy. I've, you, know, I'm, you know, instead of I'm catching, because a lot of people, you, only, you know when you first start to get a cold, it's kind of, you wake up one morning, but you don't do anything about it. But the next morning you wake up and you're going, you know, it's a little bit worse. And about the third day you wake up and you're going, and the fourth day, if you know some scripture, this is what happens most of the body of Christ, the fourth or the fifth day, then they'll wake up and they'll go, in the name of Jesus, <laughs> you know, I'm healed by his stripes. And, you know, you wait till the thing's got a hold in you. In the meantime, you've told 14 people, I think I'm catching a cold. And you're right. You're a self-fulfilling prophecy. You're catching it and possessing it and making it your own. Well, when I first got a hold of this stuff, when a cold, I had to learn to jump on it like a chicken on a bug. You know what I mean? I mean, the moment you begin to feel something come nigh your body, don't wait till it's got a foothold. Don't wait till it's got a foothold. You jump on the thing quick, and you jump on it violently, and you jump on it aggressively, and you tell the thing, no, you will not come into my spirit. You will not come into my flesh. You have no right. I am the temple of God. I refuse you the right to lodge here. But when I first started exercise faith back in those days, it's, this is what's incredible. Satan comes immediately, and this is the truth, this is the truth, this is the truth. And people, I've shared this a thousand times if I shared it once in churches and what have you. When I first began to exercise faith for a cold, a 10-day cold would normally last like 40 days. I'm serious. 40 days, because if you ever really want to discover whether or not this book is spiritual, begin to release your faith. Because you'll find out how spiritual it is, because something that would have run its normal course a lot quicker, all of a sudden gets worse and lasts longer. And what normally happens just then? You stop, you faint, and you turn around and say, this stuff doesn't work. In fact, I'm getting worse. Duh. That's how it works. See, and when I actually began to understand, of course, in the beginning, it starts to get worse. Because hell will come by force to take the message from you. And so he comes with the opposite truth. You think you're healed? Take this. Ooh. Oh, yeah? Well, take this. Ooh. And he'll put this stuff on you. And I mean, I would have a cold for 40 days. I mean, for 40 days, the same rotten cold. And boy, I'd sit there and go, my God, I'm healed by the stripes of Jesus. But I just kept, the Bible says, exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things. And the Bible says you have to exercise yourself toward godliness. Faith is a muscle that you begin to develop. But I began to keep at it. I just had some good teachers, and, I, and I'd kept at it. And thank God they wouldn't condemn you. You know what I mean? Because I remember in the old days when you first started teaching this stuff, if somebody walked into the church on a Sunday morning and had sniffles or colds, there would be these people going, is there sin in your life? And they were serious, you know. And they, would, and they made people feel so guilty 
That, you know, that really makes you feel welcome in a church, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? And they'd throw the stuff on you all in the name of trying to teach you and be in faith, and they butchered people, and they hurt people. They took the truth, like Paul said, that which was ordained unto life became death unto me. And if they began to hurt people with the sword of the Spirit, which was ordained for life, people would bash people over the head with and hurt them. But that doesn't mean the truth isn't there. So I just thank God I had some people that wouldn't condemn, and they just said, you just keep exercising your faith. Because they taught me this until I had it myself. And I began to exercise my faith, and pretty soon, the next time I'd get a cold, I'd work it down from 40 days to 30 days. It was still 30 days, a 10-day cold. But I'm serious. I watched it. I used to track it. I still, if I don't know if I still have any of my old notebooks from years ago, it went from 40 days to 30 days to 20 days to 15 days to 10 to 6 to 5. You can ask my wife. Right now, if, if I'm on my job, now I'm not saying, see, because I'm not perfect, I'm still human, and sometimes I just mess up and I don't do what I know to do. But I'm telling you, when I'm alert, when this stuff comes, because it's not that stuff doesn't come, but you learn to not let it stay. I'm telling you, there's been very few times over the last 15 years of my life where something's come that it's not gone in a matter of hours. In a matter of hours. Now, I mean, and I say that to the glory of God, but I'm telling you, I had to learn to get aggressive. And I had to stay in there and not faint and let my patients have a perfect work in those early days. It's the same truth in every area. How about the very first time you get the message of tithing or giving? I think I'll try that. And you give, and you hear all these stories about stuff that's, you know, it's going to come back to you and what have you. And like I said, you give, your washing machine breaks, your car blows up. Everything, like I said, on earth happens because Satan comes immediately to steal by force the message. And things get worse. And things get worse because he does not want you to be a giver. He does not want you to have a blessed life. He wants you sick. He wants you broke. He wants you confused. He wants you depressed. But if you can just capture this before I take the whole time on this one issue, you've got to capture this is a spiritual thing. Things often do get worse. That's part of what happens. But the issue is, it's because it's a spiritual thing. Hell doesn't want you to have the message. So if you read this, you won't be taken by surprise. See, that's what this stuff is all about. Don't be taken by surprise. So faith, the message is, is preached. And faith cometh by hearing, like I said. And so your faith gets released. But then Satan comes. But that now then is when is when patience is supposed to come. But also let me quote Galatians 6, 9 in the Amplified Bible. It says, and let us not lose heart. Now listen to this. I love this in the Amplified. Let us not lose heart and grow weary and faint and acting nobly and doing right. For in due time and at the appointed season, we shall reap if we do not loosen and relax our courage and faint. If we do not loosen and relax our courage and faint. Hallelujah. I want to tell you, every single one of you, when you release your faith, you have just determined an appointed season. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I mean, because God is not a man that he should lie. When you sow, you will reap. When you release your faith, you will reap. There's an appointed season for you. But what hell does is come in that interim period and do everything he can to get you to relax your courage, to faint, and to no longer act nobly and walk upright before God in this thing. Now, turn to Hebrews 12 real quickly. I've got about eight more minutes here, so let me see if I can just get through some of this. I've already quoted some of this, but look at this again in Hebrews 12. Verse 1, Therefore then, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, who have borne testimony to the truth, let us strip off and throw aside every encumbrance, every unnecessary weight, and that sin which so readily, deftly, and cleverly clings to and entangles us. Now listen, and let us run with patience, is what it says in the King James. But the Amplified says, let us run with patient endurance and steady and active persistence. Steady, everybody say steady. Steady, steady and active persistence, the appointed course of the race that is set before us. You see all the analogies in this. You'll see every place Paul speaks of these things. Uh, he speaks of what we call a marathon. Christianity is not a 100-yard sprint. Christianity is a marathon. You have to run this race with patience. 
And this is why still so many people faint. They faint because they're trying to get something instantly that God's ordained that is going to cause patience to work. Let patience have its perfect work. Now look at the next two verses. It says, of course, to look away. It tells you what to look not at. Now listen to verse 2. I know that you know it, but listen to it. It says, to look away from all that will distract. How many of you know there's a lot of things out there that will distract you from faith in God? Of course there are. This whole issue in the world right now, I'm telling you, if you major on it, it'll drive you crazy. Looking away from all that will distract to Jesus, who is the leader and the source of our faith. Listen how it reads in the Amplified. Giving the first incentive for our belief, and he is also its finisher, bringing it to maturity and perfection. He, for the joy of obtaining the prize that was set before him, endured the cross, despised and ignored the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And then verse 3 says this, and this is what we all need to do. King James says, reckon, reckon all your trials against what he went through. But listen to it in the Amplified. Just think of him who endured from sinners such grievous opposition and bitter hostility against himself. Reckon up and consider it all in comparison with your trials so that you may not grow weary or exhausted, losing heart and relaxing and fainting in your minds. Hallelujah. Now, did you hear that? So he says categorically what you're supposed to do in the midst of this stuff. He said, run this race with patience. Everybody say patience. patience. Run this race with patience. Look away from everything that will distract. Well, that's a commandment of the Lord. Look away. Look away from everything that will distract. Unto the author and the finisher of your faith. That's what it says, doesn't it? And it says, just consider him. When you find yourself in the midst of these trials, it says, consider him and see what he went through and weigh what he went through up against what you're going through. It says, so that you won't grow weary and faint and exhausted in your minds through fear. It says also, so that you won't faint in your minds. Now, <laughs> what happens when you faint physically? What happens? Well, you class, what causes fainting, basically? What's the simplest way to explain why somebody faints? It's because the blood, for some reason, leaves the mind, doesn't it? The blood leaves the brain, and you become wheezy, and you faint. The blood leaves the mind, and you faint. But the Bible says that's where you faint is in your what? Mind. Where do you faint? In your mind. You see, your thought processes. You faint in your mind. And you know there's a wonderful analogy there because Jesus likens his word to blood in John chapter 6. Remember he said, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And most of the disciples said this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? Many of them left him and stopped following him from that day forward. But those who left, Jesus turned and he explained. He said, no, no, no. He said, you don't. He said, it's the words that I'm speaking unto you. They are spirit and they are life. And what he was referring to is he said, you need to consume my words, my message. But what they heard is they heard him liken or equate his words to life and therefore to blood. Hallelujah. To blood. Because the life is in the blood. Now I said all that because of the verse we've quoted before. The Bible says that you have to cast down imaginations and every high thing that would exalt itself against the knowledge of God. You see, your mind, we've been commanded that our minds be renewed. The word is metamorphosized. Renewed to the word of God so that we might prove what is the good, the acceptable, and the perfect will of God. Everything that would exalt itself against the knowledge of God, your mind is made to have the word of God sit upon the throne of its thinking. Hallelujah. You hear me? This right here, we're supposed to think the thoughts of God. It tells us what to think. Whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of a good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on those things. So if it tells you to do that, you can. But what hell comes is he comes with an alternative message, and he comes to exalt his knowledge above the knowledge of the Most High. He comes to dethrone this 
and he gets you to think what he wants you to think, and he begins to basically cause you to faint in your mind. Now, I said all that because in the natural physical body, the blood leaves. Well, see, God likened his word. Jesus likened his word to the blood. And what happens is the word, the blood, leaves your head, and you begin to faint. You hear me? Amen. Oh, well. Hallelujah. Don't worry. We're about to take our break here so you can keep smiling. But that's where we faint. We faint in our minds. That's why you have to understand what that means. You can take every thought captive. Hallelujah. Otherwise, he wouldn't tell us to do so. See, let me tell you something real quickly. We'll just stop with this. Thoughts, like I said the other day, Jesus said, take no thought saying, what shall I eat? What shall I drink? What shall I wear? Thoughts unspoken will die unborn. And you're called to take control of your thought life. People say, well, you can't do that. You can do that. Again, my old spiritual dad used to make this statement that's humorous. He said, let me tell you, he said, thoughts are like birds. He said, you can't keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. You know what I mean? You can run the things off. But if you don't deal with things when they're just thoughts, thoughts lead to imaginations, right? What's the root word of the word imagination? Image. You think something long enough, if it becomes an imagination, you begin to see. You begin to see things. You see yourself weak. You see yourself anemic. You see yourself dying. You see yourself poor. And if you don't deal with imaginations, it can become a stronghold. Now, as long as there are thoughts or imaginations, you can deal with it yourself. But often, if it's a stronghold in your thinking, you need outside help. A stronghold is bad. But now, we all know that on the negative. But don't you see, if you can do that in the negative, you can do that in the positive. If I can get you to think the thoughts of God long enough, you'll start getting godly imaginations. You'll begin to see a picture of you well. You'll begin to see a picture of you whole, complete, free, not confused. Hallelujah. And I tell you, if you begin to have spiritual imaginations and see yourself in the light of God, like the Word says we're supposed to do in Corinthians, where we behold and the Word of God is in the face, of, as in a mirror, the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll find yourself being transformed from one glory to another. And you'll have images of yourself being free. You've got to see yourself free. This is, again, that's why it connects to the heart. See, what you have in your heart, like I keep saying, you'll always gravitate, gravitate towards. But you see, if I can get you to think in the thoughts of God long enough, till you get to where you begin to have imaginations of yourself free, if you keep that up long enough, you know what? Bless God, you'll have a stronghold. Hallelujah. Where no one can tell you you're not free. No one can tell you it's the will of God for you to be sick. No one can tell you it's the will of God for you to be poor, miserable, depressed. Because you'll have a stronghold in the positive sense towards the truth of God's word. Hallelujah. And you can all do that. If you've ever done it in the negative, you can do it in the positive. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we trust you, Father, that it has a strong entrance into our spirit. In Jesus' precious name, Lord, use this word for us. Amen. Amen. 